house. No, the right no, house. I didn't get We want to talk to Marilyn Hack. I'm from Canada Water. Thank you. You ready for a little action? Oh, this looks juicy. How is this all possible? Think of it as a Google search, except instead of searching only what people make public, we're also looking at everything they don't. Emails, chats, SMS, whatever. Yeah, but which people? The whole kingdom's Snow White. The NSA is really tracking every cell phone in the world. Most Americans don't want freedom. They want security. Except people, they don't even know they've made that bargain. Are they watching us? There's something going on inside the government that's really wrong, and I can't ignore it. Hello, and welcome to the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, the only podcast that thinks you killed our goat. Every week on This Had Oscar Buzz, we'll be talking about a different movie that once upon a time had lofty Academy Award aspirations, but for some reason or another, it all went wrong. The Oscar hopes died, and we are here to perform the autopsy. I'm your host, Joe Reed. I'm here, as always, with the Snow White to my rest of the Snow White metaphor, Chris File. Hello, Chris. Quite the half-assed Snow White metaphor at that. And, and yet, it keeps on going. I yeah. mean, they. it was like they portrayed it like it's supposed to be this metaphor, but really, if they called him mm-hmm. Snow White, it's just like toxic masculinity, right? It's just dudes trying to be like, hey, sure. woman. I to, will say, uh, first of all... To emasculate their male compatriots. Yes. I will say, and you know I love Lil Ben Schnetzer, so I will give him credit for going for it like if that's the chicken shit that they give you then at least you know keep on keep on keeping on with it i don't know our second ben schnetzer um which i don't think this is our how many joseph gordon levitts have we done it's only like two or three actually because it was a ziwak and Mm. um hold on oh that's right we did do ziwak yes we sure did yeah so it's only our second joseph gordon levitt um. Yeah, our second only our second Melissa Leah, which is actually maybe even more surprising. <laughs> I mean, we are inherently a Melissa Leo podcast because we are a podcast that you know is carrying on the image of her consider campaign. Um, well, yes, it, we we hold that campaign in our hearts. Yeah, pretty it's much intrinsic, constantly. intrinsic to the blood of uh, this very <laughs> podcast. Yeah, exactly. Uh, we will definitely talk about the kind of wide ranging cast of this movie at some point because it is um, sort of the typical Oliver Stone cast a wide net. You know, get a lot of name actors or whatever, and. We'll talk about the the various sort of successes, and and I don't know if there's anybody who's too terribly bad in this, although apparently the Razzies disagreed, but we'll get into that at some point. Um, before we get into Snowden, though, I wanted to take a little time and enjoy the view, but also um, talk about the New York Film Festival, which I attended, though not as robustly as i would have liked uh this past few weeks of course uh as you may know the new york film festival takes its 
dang time and runs from essentially late late September through mid-October and starts its press screenings even earlier than that. So it's it's in many ways kind of a month-long <laughs> sort of <laughs> leisurely uh, expanse of movie screenings, which A, makes it very hard for somebody to cover it from out of town. Our mm-hmm. uh, beloved friend and past and future, soon future guest, uh, Katie Rich, managed to... Thanksgiving is coming. Uh, to drop into town and see a heroic, I would say, amount of movies in a very short amount of time, and I give her a ton of credit for that. Um, but in general, it's uh, it takes a while, and so you can't like take a week off of work like you could for TIFF and just sort of binge a bunch of movies, and then you've seen all the TIFF movies. With New York Film Festival, you have to sort of like... It's almost like death by a thousand cuts in terms of like taking time away where it's just like, I got to be out for this morning and this afternoon and this morning. And my work situation didn't super allow that for me this year. Uh, and also I was feeling sick for a portion of this. So it was. How um, dare you be a responsible citizen and stay home if you're sick? Oh, it wasn't even like COVID sick stuff. It was like stomachy sick. Uh, regardless, stuff, regardless, still. you are you are a concerned citizen, not wanting to give whatever sickness you had. This is true to anyone. This is true. So I had to miss a bunch of stuff that I was really excited to see. I had to miss She Said, which just recently um, premiered at New York Film Festival. I had to miss, which is uh, relevant to this. Uh, this movie that we're talking about today, uh, Laura Poitras's All the Beauty and the Bloodshed. Which so, I saw at TIFF, one of my favorite movies of the year. I know. So now I've gone through two film festivals where I've missed All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, which is like a real bummer because I am very excited to see it. Uh, I had to miss Kelly Rackert's Showing Up and Paul Schrader's Master Gardener and Claire Denis' Stars at Noon. So which I saw last night, by the way. Everybody and you like who it. Everybody hated it at Cannes is uh wrong oh <laughs> it's okay. a rad movie i mean it feels predictable Take that, that can people as soon it feels utterly predictable that like you know the second wave crowd gets to see it and of course there are no notable defenders for it uh myself yeah. included but like it's a good movie <laughs> and it's also pretty fucking straightforward for claire denis like How i don't understand it? How long is it? How long? It is her longest movie. It's like two hours and 15 minutes. So uh, You can rent it right now on iTunes. By the time this episode comes out, it'll be on Hulu. Chris and I are currently in the midst of a project for something that we can't talk about right now. But it was requiring us to watch, uh, catch up on a lot of movies that are very, 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 very long. Like, yeah. like very, very long. Like I was going through the spreadsheet about it and I sort of made a little, I should uh, add that to the spreadsheet. I actually, I'll do it. Cause I, I made a copy of the spreadsheet for myself and I added those in. Um, and a lot of it is like 190 minutes, 220 minutes. And it's just like, <laughs> these are like, this isn't just like your usual, like two hours and change kind of stuff. There's just, I'm very, telling very you the, movies. the 220 that I think you're referencing, you really got to try to see it in a theater. And I'm sure you can. I, I, I missed one yesterday. I'll say that, uh, because wow. I, um, the, the, the concept of sitting in a place for more than, three hours and almost four hours 
I really got to trust that that theater's got comfortable seats or else like I'm going to ruin my week. And Well, not to not to to, to like uh get people to know what movie we're talking about, but like y- you'll get an intermission. They do it's programmed with an intermission. Still. Still and still. We'll talk about it off uh off mic. But anyway, New York Film Festival. So what I did see, I I saw a a strong five and but I will say I really liked I at base was interested in all five, and four of the five I thought were really good. So the one I thought was the least good, we'll start with that one. Um uh Don DeLillo's not for me, I think I have decided. So I was a little nonplussed by white noise. And I love Noah Bombeck. I love especially Noah Bombeck and Greta Gerwig and Adam Driver in tandem. And Driver is very good. I think Gerwig is very good. I've seen some reviews that have sort of pointed her out as a weak spot, and I don't think I would agree with that. Um, I think it's the I think it's the source material that I'm just like it's so. I don't know. I don't want to talk about it too much since you haven't seen it. Um, but it's you've seen Cosmopolis though, right? Yeah. So you sort of like. You get the vibe, right? Of this sort of like, <laughs> I'm going to be saying big things about like the way we are and what, you know, humanity is, is doing. And I'm going to do it in the most elliptical and portentous way possible. And I appreciate it. And if people are like into that, I give you all the credit in the world. I find it a little tedious and I find it a little alienating. And I, uh, I don't know. I sort of throw in the white, the white flag at that point. I also feel like just in general, this being Netflix's late December release that, and I have to imagine the people at Netflix have realized this by now. Like this is not the Oscar horse that you were looking for. If you are Netflix going into an award season where they have remarkably fewer Oscar contenders than they have in years past. They've been on a streak and fewer of fewer well-liked ones. <laughs> well, but even just in general, like even even just like what they're coming to the table with is a lot fewer. And like they're running on a streak of several years in a row with two best picture nominee nominees in, you know, per year since the uh, since the Roma year, was there a second one? At the very least since 2019. 2019, 2020, 2021, I think they've all had multiple uh, Best Picture nominees. And it ain't gonna happen this year. Uh, I still feel like Bardo could happen, but it's going to take a kind of wholesale rejection of the critical consensus <laughs> about that movie, which is possible. Like, that does happen. But I'm gonna like that movie. I'm just warning everyone right now. I'm I haven't like seen it. it either. I the 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 signs point to it not being the kind of thing that I would like. But who knows? Hope springs eternal. Um, but I was I, everybody I've talked to after I've seen White Noise and sort of we've all sort of have. I think I've gotten mostly agreement that like White Noise is not going to be a huge Oscar contender. Uh, the one that seems to continue to stand out now and i really hope that they push is glass onion because people have seen it it's their best bet people have liked it it is a huge crowd pleaser it will require sort of 
reversing the angle on the Oscar narrative of Knives Out, which is like, oh, it's just a screenplay movie. Um, but the goods are there. And I'm really, really hoping that Netflix decides to really heavily put their chips onto Glass Onion because a Best Picture nomination is possible. Acting nominations are possible in addition to things like the craft aspects of the movie, which are tremendous, I think, in terms of art direction and costume design. And so I'm hoping that that is the case, but we'll see. If people can shut the hell up about the movie and stop ruining it bit by bit for the people who haven't seen it. I know. It. Listen, I, I, I understand why the Angela Lansbury-ness of it all got leaked this i don't even know if it was like leaked i like it really seems like Netflix i mean na- major publications were running it were running headlines of it so right. it yeah. was it was with it seemingly felt like it was with netflix bless- netflix's blessing and i get it because all this like there's because angela lansbury died you don't want to maybe play a gotcha <laughs> with somebody who just died and like i get sure. it but at least the context in which she appears is not really getting spoiled because that is too good to spoil. Like, yeah, yeah, we won't we won't talk about it further. Um, what else did you see at New York? Tell so, me uh, in terms of what you have also seen, I saw After Sun, which my is God. maybe my favorite movie of the year so far. I don't want to sort of start locking things into place, but it is definitely right. up there. It's incredibly it's up there, and it's opening the week of this episode, at least in limited release, or it will have opened. And it's a small movie, and so listeners were about to be very effusive about this movie. Please give it your dollars. Like, it's going to have, I think, a tricky theatrical road. This is the it's a debut film from Charlotte Wells, right? I believe debut feature, debut feature, uh, written and directed by Charlotte Wells, produced by Barry Jenkins. Um, you're going to hear a lot about people being like, oh, I spent the last half of that movie in tears. And it's like, it's true, but like, this is not a uh, difficult movie to watch. This is not something that is going to like ruin your week after you watch it. I found it like, yeah, I was in tears too, but I found it incredibly um, sort of affirming. I would say it's probably very cathartic about things that we in everyday life do not have catharsis about. And that's one of the things that makes it very special. Well, it's sort of a memory movie. Uh, Mm -hmm. Not even sort of. It's a memory movie. To me, if I were to give like an elevator uh, pitch or whatever, uh, it's to be uh, to risk seeming a little bit trite. I walked out of it being like, oh, it's somewhere meets fun home meets something Scottish. And, um, and like in all of the best ways, and you know how much I love somewhere. And I also love fun home and there are, uh, aspects of both in there. Uh, Paul Mescal, who plays a divorced father of a teenage, tweenage, how old is she? Burgeoning teenager, about to be teenager. Right. Young daughter. And they're on vacation in Turkey and it's this sort of leisurely thing where they don't really have, you know, there's not really a ton of plot necessarily, but the emotional terrain that is being covered in a very, like, not fraught way. 
is really, really something. It's very delicate. It's very... um, Slowly, the stakes of what you've been watching come into focus. And, um, you know, it... I wouldn't use a word like abstract, but like yeah. there are some, you know, unique uh, formal strokes that are being taken in this movie that have a real impact on the emotional effect of this movie. Yeah. Um, I've heard from some people that they were like, I didn't get it. I didn't know what I was watching in some of this. And I don't kind of understand that. But yeah, so like. Uh, be prepared to use a little bit of your brain yeah, to understand yeah. what the movie but is. I think, but like, but I think, it's not a pretentious movie. You know? No. This is the thing I wanted to talk to you about, though, with regards to this movie, which is, in terms of the in terms of Oscar context and the kinds of things that we talk about, is you get a movie like After Sun, which I have seen overwhelmingly received positively at the film festivals that it's appeared at, from Cannes to, uh, was it at Venice? Or no. okay, can to Toronto to now New York Film Festival. I've seen Telluride too. It showed up as a sneak preview at Telluride. So most, the grand majority of people seem to really, really like this movie, and yet throughout its festival run, it has been received as a no, a non entity in the Oscar conversation. Right? It's great. It's not going to be an Oscar movie. How does this happen? And what is to be done about it? Because, like, I just, it's so, it's one of those it's things. It's frustrating. I mean, no, I it's sometimes take that kind of thing for granted because it's like, oh, yeah, like there are just some movies that are outside of, you know, the Oscar conversation. And I sort of paused with this one and I was like, but why? Like, I don't understand. Why? And it's part of it as I guess A24 has its priorities elsewhere. Scale, number, uh, the number of unknowns, uh, though, like, the production team is Barry Jenkins and Adele Romanski. This is what I'm so, saying! Like, what yeah. else do you need? Um, yeah. I think, and I know that, like, when you hear, like, a certain level of, like, everybody being doing ad- advocacy to make sure that movies sell tickets, like we were at the top of describing this movie, I know that gets annoying, but, like, that's ultimately what this movie would need to probably get into that type of conversation. It would need a lot of people seeing it, a lot of people loving it, and a lot of people reacting to it. So, And I guess the idea do. is that nobody seems to feel like that's going to happen, so might as well just sort of push your efforts into other things, campaign-wise? I mean, A24 is basically doing a fire sale of all of their product right now. Uh, Stars at Noon, for example. Um, So uh, this movie is lucky that it's getting an exclusive theatrical release. Well, and at the same time, they're going full court press for everything everywhere all at once, which seems like it's poised to pay off in some pretty big ways. It's a a long season, so we don't know for sure. But... um, so, like, I get that, like, small studios with financial interestingness um, have to, you know, pick their battles. But it's just a bummer that, like, we all seem to be in agreement that, like, this is a really, really great movie. Yeah. And it's the best it can do is, like, show up on top ten lists. Like, I will be even surprised if this ends up getting critics awards. Which is too bad because Paul Mescal deserves 
Paul Mescal is one of the best performances of the year, and I, everybody's like, wow, this best actor year sucks. This best actor year sucks. And I'm like, you've yeah. got to be kidding me. What is wrong with you people? Connect I, these dots. <laughs> I'm at least hopeful that Charlotte Wells gets some attention in First Filmmaker Awards right. or, you know, something like that. Because, um, I don't know, it's very much deserving. So go see it. Go see After Sun for Pete's sake and then talk to us about it. Um, I... Sawtar, I'm going to wait to talk to you about Tar until you've seen it. I'm and possibly seeing it on Tuesday. Every, uh, uh, yeah, we'll push that. There will be plenty of occasion to talk about Tar because this movie is going to definitely be a player in award season. So um, we'll talk about it. I think it's a really, really good movie. And yet there is some little thing in me that is not as effusive as everybody else and i genuinely don't understand what my problem is so you've had a you've had a busy few weeks you maybe just needed more space around i also like while i watched that movie was like coming to like big personal crescendos in my like i was thinking about a lot of things as i was watching tars so like um uh, maybe that was it I That's saw also not a bad thing. <laughs> well, but I think in the I think in the case of me maybe uh finding room in my heart for enthusiasm for this movie, wow. maybe it was uh it was a lot to ask. Anyway, um we're all people, we're all human beings. We watch movies in our own little personal tempests and uh the That's world true. is a unexplainable place. Um bones and all. I saw the bones. bones. I saw the bones. The all of the bones. All the bones. Um all the bones and the bloodshed. I really liked it. I'm excited for you to see this as well. Can't and wait to see this movie. I'm gonna. I think I'm gonna like this movie. Taylor Russell and Timmy Chalamet are really, really fantastic. Mark Rylance, I said when I saw this movie, uh, exists in this movie within the Rose the Hat cinematic universe, and I will stand by that. Um, he's on one <laughs> for sure. Which um, is my only reservation because I have. This is going to be the movie that fully tips me over into the edge if it doesn't work for me of I hate Mark Rylance. Uh, it could do that. <laughs> because he's that. so bad in so many movies. Um, How many times have you seen him on stage on in anything? Huh? How many times have you seen him on stage in anything? An absolute zero. Gusek. Okay. I've only seen him one time, but it was in Jerusalem and he was phenomenal. And so like, I feel like he's almost earned a lifetime pass for me for that. So, um, But you're not wrong about uh, the film performances and I'm not fully optimistic that Bones and All is going to change it for you but it, you know who knows um, it's Luca's going all in on this kind of you know cannibal romance and I think it's really good and it's can be really romantic and also very gross and also um, in at least one instance incredibly sexy in a way that i feel bad for finding it sexy so um <laughs> that's all i want out of a luca guadagnino movie as far as i'm concerned um and then the last movie i saw was james gray's armageddon time which is proving to be a little bit more divisive than i thought it would be actually given the log line i was like i can probably tell you exactly how this is going to be divisive it is divisive in exactly that way um it's a sort of memoir movie about james gray's childhood growing up in queens um the young character in this has a somewhat in like i wouldn't say fraught home life but like it's a it's a home life that sort of belies any kind of notions of you know nostalgic 
purity or whatever. Um, it's also a movie that has uh, surprise Trump illusions. I say surprise because I had totally forgotten that that was a conversation when it played at Cannes. That's who uh, Jessica Chastain plays. Uh-huh. Um, but also that a major part of the movie is uh, young, not James Gray, but James Gray uh, befriends a young black kid at his school, at his public school that he goes to. And then he transfers to a private school. And there is a sort of uh, paralleling of experience between what happens to a young white kid who gets in trouble and that time and a young black kid who gets in trouble at that time. And there have been people who don't feel like Gray carries off the burden of that responsibility to tell mm-hmm. that story very well. I don't agree, but I don't want to I'm go really into it too depth to until see you've it seen because it. it also sounds like it's not just his own personal examination or just exclusively this white guilt movie, but also examining his experience in the Jewish faith and the Jewish exactly. tradition. And that is more so the emphasis of what he's trying to examine in terms of this. Right. Of well, and it's also about how our parents can fail us and how our, our older generations can endure horrific things and yet fail to connect the dots or, or, or not be able to, as successfully as we want them to be able to connect the dots to what's happening to other people. Mm -hmm. And it's a really interesting movie. I think it's a tremendously interesting movie. I think in terms of Oscar stuff, I wouldn't be shocked if there's a successful Anthony Hopkins supporting actor campaign. He's a very, he's good. And it's also a very sort of Oscar friendly, very sympathetic role. It's very much like the character you like best in the movie. He has a couple good monologues. He serves an interesting parallel to what Judd Hirsch does in The Fablemans, not in the same huh. tenor, not in the same pitch, but like functionally, there are parallels. And um, it would be interesting to see them both nominated uh, in the same category. So, that was my New York Film Festival experience. I wish it had been more. Like I said, I had heard encouraging things about She Said, which I was sort of trepidatious about going into. Um, showing up, the Kelly Rackert movie isn't going to show up until next year, so um, we'll push that conversation to next year. I was really surprised to see basically no conversation around the Kelly Reichert. I think people seem to like it. From everything that I saw on Twitter and ter- from people who had seen it, they seem to like it. And People could also just be saving their energy, too. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure if Master Gardener is going to open this year or it doesn't have distribution not. yet. Okay, so that'll also probably... As, as is the uh, Paul Schrader way lately, um, movie screens at a festival and then it opens early in the next year. So... Um. If I can shout out a movie that I saw recently that played New York Film Festival, but I missed at TIFF, uh, I served on another film festival jury. I served on the Hot, uh, Hot Springs Documentary Film Festival jury, Woo-hoo! where we gave our critics prize to De Humani Corpus Fabrica. You oh, this is the this? Uh, body horror uh, uh, documentary. Basically. Yeah. It's a documentary that they filmed uh, throughout several French hospitals, uh, 
emphasis on the body and uh, the bureaucracy of hospitals. Where All the body and the bureaucracy is uh, the subtitle. <laughs> All the beauty and the bureaucracy. Um, we, you know, there's a lot of footage inside the body while all of these uh, surgeries are happening. You're seeing uh, a lot of dramatic body experiences, but it's also I'm really doing the Isabel Huppert at the, the round table, just like frowning and shaking my head and no. saying no. <laughs> you know, I thought I would be, I was like slack jawed for half the movie, but I wasn't like stomach turned. Sure. But it, you know, it's a really kind of brilliant transfixing uh movie that makes you kind of think about your mortality i was kind of describing it as you know we talk so much about like death and the degradation of the human body and we think that god is indifferent i think this is a movie that doesn't that says god is not indifferent the system is indifferent to your body's suffering um but it was also really funny there's like a dick surgery happening where the surgeons are having a full-blown argument in the middle of it and i could not help but laugh um probably not an oscar player but it would be amazing (laughs) if it was in the doc race I would, I would live. Then I'd have to see it though, and it sounds like it would freak me out. And on a on a hypochondrial level, I feel like it would, um, it would do damage to me. Uh, Adventurous listeners, seek it out. Okay. All right. Uh, Let's move back into the uh, the gentleman of the hour, Edward Snowden. Um. If you are ready with a plot description, I feel like now is uh, no time like the present to. Uh, I I should have done a vocal warm up. I feel like I need to just (laughs) to do this episode. We both have to drop our voice. Edward three very performative octaves. Yeah, and that is uh, that's what it's all about. Snowden Um, is directed by Oliver Stone. I also made the realization that the template that i think carrie mulligan is using to do an american dialect is joseph gordon levitt in this movie because it is very what exactly are we looking at here Um, it is that's just what she's doing right she's just not telling anybody sure sure yes very good um i think it's i think we've moved on from the um christian bale ryan gosling school (laughs) of like we're gonna be tough new yorkers yeah, I'm a tough. I'm a tough guy. I'm a. I'm gonna change my voice to sound like a tough guy. Listen, I love Ryan Gosling. No, no complaints. No notes. All right, uh, we're gonna be talking about Snowden, directed by Oliver Stone, uh, written by Kieran Fitzgerald and Oliver Stone, starring Deep Breath, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Shailene Woodley, Melissa Leo, Zachary Quinto, Tom Wilkinson, Scott Eastwood. If you can. If your eyes can pick up Scott Eastwood on the visual plane, then he's in this movie. Otherwise, it's just a blurry face moving across the screen, and that's fine. Um, Logan Marshall Green, Timothy Oliphant, Ben Schnetzer, Baby Boy, Lakeith Stanfield, Reese Ifans, Jolie Richardson, Ben Chaplin, and Nicolas Cage. Uh, we'll talk about, uh, uh, poor Nicolas Cage, uh, soon premiered at the Toronto Film Festival on September 9th, 2016, and it opened in wide release merely a week later, September 16th, 2016. We'll talk about that as well. Chris, I'm going to pull up my little phone and I'm going to give you the opportunity to do a 60 second plot description when you're ready. 
Absolutely, let's go. All right, starting now. All right, we're following Edward Snowden uh, a, a, uh, throughout his life in various like mismatch points. You know, we're hopping around in time. Uh, just to, for the sake of brevity, we'll go from the beginning when he's starting uh, in the U.S. Army. He eventually uh, auditions, uh, interviews with the CIA to be basically <laughs> like a hacker for them, and he does in in their systems to like uh, you know. Do CIA shit, basically, and he ends up working both as a subcontractor. He leaves the CIA for a while because he ha- he discovers through baby seconds. boy Ben Schnetzer that the uh, U.S. is actually spying on everyone, just every U.S. citizen, basically, blah, 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 instead, in the name of terrorism, but it's really about maintaining a global power. Anyway, so he leaves, he comes back, and then eventually he, uh, you know, exposes them or, like, releases these documents. Laura Potras shows up uh, with Zachary Quinton as Glenn Greenwald, and then and they make uh, Citizen Four, and then he's eventually reunited with his girlfriend, who has had like a blog. Boom! Fifty-nine seconds. Very good. I mean, doing a sixty-second plot description of a biopic—it's like we know you, flagrant homosexual, des- describing him interviewing for a job as auditioning. Which <laughs> now I'm just going to imagine Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Edward Snowden coming in with like sheet music for The Wizard and I, and just being like, <laughs> "I will be doing." <laughs> Today, today I will be performing for you uh, The Wizard and I from Wicked and a monologue from Fast Times at Ridgemont High. Okay, now we're now our Edward Snowden is like creeping into the Amanda Seyfried as Elizabeth Holmes category too, which which is delightful. I also don't... Un- I, this is going to be the episode where I sound incredibly stupid because I don't understand computer stuff. I don't yeah. understand... Uh, and, and like also we we know who edward snowden is well this is the thing so this is if i'm going to sum up the oscar failure for snowden because here's the thing i think snowden the movie the oliver stone movie starring joseph gordon levitt is a pretty watchable movie and it's long but i didn't want to slip my wrists and there are some interesting things about it and i think it's like if somebody's parents came across this movie on cable and watched it and then emailed their kid about it or whatever. And like, I saw this interesting movie about Edward Snowden or whatever. I'd be like, yeah, you might be able to slightly change their politics. And I'm glad you saw it. Um, or, you know, that's, I always forget that like people have to change their parents' politics. I'm incredibly fortunate that I don't have to do that with my parents. Um, I don't really have to change. Well, I mean, eh, we all have our own little, Yeah, 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 yeah. I just want my mom to, stop being on facebook so much i don't think she's been co-opted by the bad parts of facebook but like it's always lurking out there and i just want to like nip anything in the bud facebook is bad anyway um the problem with edward snowden particularly the problem as an oscar case is citizen four is right there citizen four happened two years before this it's a superior movie it's a superior delivery system for the edward snowden story it's more exciting and i think stone somewhat like, admits to that by the end of this movie because the last 10 minutes of this movie veer into the whole thing where everything that happens after he leaves Hong Kong till when he ends up in Russia is delivered as a documentary. And then his closing monologue gets seeded to the real Edward Snowden in Russia, which yeah. part of that is like Oliver Stone's weird Russophilia, and we'll get into that for sure. But It's also, also kind of impossible to... Go through, you know, his sudden notoriety and, uh, 
you know, the release of these documents mm -hmm. because, like, how do you do that without Laura Poitras and Glenn Greenwald and then essentially a nod to Citizen Four? Because right. they were there during right. the whole during that experience. And too. Citizen Four won the Oscar. So like uh -huh. where what room do you have to like maneuver above that? Like you really don't. And I think you have room to maneuver above that if this movie is anything more interesting than a very standard biopic well if it's a, if, if it's an oliver stone of the 90s kind of a movie right where it's audacious. an oliver stone of the very early 90s you well, know where it's like Nixon was mid 90s and like i feel like I that know, was true, you know true. what i mean but yeah. like where he's taking i mean i don't think he doesn't think he's taking these creative leaps because like all the cgi in this movie is a little ugly and like well and but it's but it also ultimately is pretty facile in terms of like the audaciousness of it. Like I yeah. want like I want big like Bob Hoskins as uh, Henry Kissinger kind of swings. You know what I mean? Like I well, want. Well, and there's like no real political statement made by this. Surprisingly movie. so, really like, surprisingly so. Unless you think that saying Edward Snowden is merely not a traitor that that is some incendiary political right. statement. Right. Because ultimately... you're not going to be really, like, energized into conversation. Oliver Stone's portrait of Edward Snowden is, this is a guy who really loved his country, and he went to the military, and he argued with his, you know, lefty girlfriend about the liberal media, and he really wanted to be pro-American, and... He wasn't able to because the surveillance state was beyond the pale, but he still didn't want to put... And, like, a lot of this is based in fact. He didn't want to put his fellow, uh, you know, CIA, uh, you know, tech, what is the term, analysts or whatever, um, in danger. He was very careful about that kind of thing. He wasn't reckless. Uh, and the movie feels like it's trying to make the case that, like, Edward Snowden blew the whistle on the American surveillance state as responsibly as he possibly could have. And it's like, that's not necessarily an incorrect statement so much as it's like, it's not an exciting statement and it's not the most Oliver Stone way I would imagine. Yeah. It's not this, really the foundation for a movie. Where's or like, the rage at the American surveillance state in this movie? It really doesn't exist. It exists more in, in, in Citizen Four, I would say. There's more, I mean, I do think that there's a few targeted moments towards, like, Obama. Sure. That, well, but I, but I also think that's because we are conditioned to expect not very much invective against Obama. Well, right? and, but, like, even those moments are, again, pretty facile. Mm -hmm. Like, you know. Yeah. Yes, I agree. Um, so it's... Again, I think it's a watchable movie with good performances, and I think it's it just anybody who says to me, "Oh, I saw Snowden. I thought it was pretty good." I would immediately be like, "Here's where Citizen Four is streaming. Go watch that. <laughs> it's much more exciting. It's much better." Um, I think the I, movie. I have to admit, I was even a little kind of bored by Citizen Four. Like, I, I don't even think Citizen Four really tells his story as great as some other people think it is. I would maybe be less kind than you are to this movie. I, I imagined you would be. I'm yes. I'm stretching to think of a good performance in this movie. It, some oh, of it feels a little bit like dress up. 
I think like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt is good in this movie. I think the voice is entirely unnecessary, and it distracts from what I think is a pretty good performance. Uh, I mean, like, I think the voice is also so distracting because it's, like, the one proximity he can get to Edward Snowden because he fully looks absolutely nothing like him. Um, but also, this is my thing with the voice, which is, I get that, like, this is, again, the movie nodding to the fact that a lot of people would have seen Citizen Four. But, like, is Edward Snowden's particularly vocal timbre so instrumental to him as a person that if we didn't have it, we would spend the whole movie being like, well, he doesn't sound like Edward Snowden. I can't buy this. Get out of here with this. Like, no, I don't imagine that that's the case at all. Like, it's there's it's not like Kate Blanchett playing Catherine Hepburn, where it's like the voice is wild, but you can understand why it would feel necessary because, um, you know, Catherine Hepburn has a very incredibly distinctive voice that had that we've experienced throughout the years. Whereas like this, it's like, yeah, we've all heard Edward Snowden's voice, but I imagine if Joseph Gordon-Levitt went through a movie talking like Joseph Gordon-Levitt, I'd be fine. Like I'd mm-hmm. be good and fine. So, um it just it ended up being more distracting for being so unnecessarily weird. But I think in general for what Stone is asking him to play, which is, I think, pretty unremarkably conflicted and uh, well-intentioned, I think he does that pretty well. Uh, I mean, <laughs> I, th- I think generally you like him more as an I actor do. I do. than I do. Yeah. I kind of found him a little... I don't know, undersalted in this movie. <laughs> sure. Um I, I, I needed I needed uh, a, a little I needed something at least in the performance to be like, I understand who this man is, why he is significant to, you know, mm-hmm. our times, but I need to know why he as a person is interested. I need some type of like Yeah. F- not flair, but like Yeah. I mean, again, I something think something this... like precise about who he was as a person beyond, but and I I do think that that's a limitation of the script. So I'm not yeah. really trying to dog on JGL for this because, like, I think he's playing the lead in a uninterestingly scripted biopic. You know. So like, where does this come in terms of his career? Because we've talked about the walk. And um, the walk is before this. What's interesting is like both he and Oliver Stone kind of go away (laughs) after this movie. He's not Uh, really in anything. Like still shilling out JFK docs that no one wants or will watch. Well, for the most part, he's doing that. But the thing that Oliver Stone really went hard into after this was Putin. He made the the Putin documentary for Showtime. He spent years, sort of, and this is why it's. It's interesting watching this movie because also Glenn Greenwald is a major character in this, and we want to talk about that for sure because Quinto's performance is hysterical. Um, Bad. Yes. Bad. But like, but also weirdly appropriate. Like, if you've ever seen Glenn Greenwald interviewed on television where he's like, why are you so pissed off just at like the prospect of existing like he always looks so like pissy and mean and whatever and like that's the energy that zachary quinto is bringing to this performance and like i there were a couple scenes not incorrect well not incorrectly but so greenwald has gone sort of all in on the the russophilia thing and like oliver stone i think perhaps as a condition of being somebody who has spent the major part of his career uh exposing the united states for its malfeasance in the um 
foreign policy theater and for being, you know, hypocritical in its stance as a world leader or whatever. He has adopted a enemy of my enemy is my friend attitude towards uh-huh. Russia in a really, really, I think, fairly immature way and went all in on sort of lionizing Putin, even as the Russian state was doing things like cracking down on gay people and, you know, cracking down on human rights and that kind of thing. And at the very least, I did do a quick Google search just to sort of make sure that, like, I was as current as possible. And after the invasion of Ukraine... Because there's more, certainly, but no one's listening to this man anymore. After the invasion of the Ukraine, he at least had the grace to sort of, like, make a long Facebook post and be like, Putin's gone too far with this, while still being like, ultimately, the United States backed him into a corner and and all this, like, bullshitty, bullshitty, Mm -hmm. propaganda, propaganda. Um, But that, to me, is what's sort of defined. He sort of went all in on people like Fidel Castro and Vladimir Putin and all of these... You know, all the boogeymen that America has told you to hate were actually good, like kind of a thing. And it has, I think, obscured the kind of fascinating firebrand that he was for a while in his career in terms of exposing these kind of American myths and Vietnam being one of the major ones. Like he dedicated a huge swath of his career to kind of read helping to i wouldn't i'm not going to solely credit him with this but like being pretty instrumental towards redefining vietnam in the american uh in, back-to-back in the american uh, best memory. director oscars yeah yeah which is why we will always be talking about oliver stone movies on this podcast because back-to-back <laughs> director oscars means you're always going to be at the very least in the conversation so um but so there's this I don't know how I was tying that back into um what uh what I wanted to say about Snowden. I guess it's just sort of the idea of watching this portrait of Edward Snowden, who now is a Russian citizen and had sought asylum in Russia, and that was basically the place that took him in. I tend to not want to sort of draw qualitative uh evaluations about edward snowden because as as relates to russia because it's like that's where he had to go you know what i mean it's like but it's also a movie now being directed by putin apologist oliver stone featuring putin apologist glenn greenwald with absolutely like no even reverence or question for why that might make uh him a more complicated figure in an interesting way especially when it's like the movie doesn't really interest itself in any type of complication in the portraiture like right well and it spends so much time on these kind of trite biographical details for as much as i think shailene woodley does her best in this movie she's ill-served in a role that ultimately feels very stock, right? She's the girlfriend who's the impediment to what he's trying to do. Way more interested in the fact that she taught pole dancing than Mm. anything else about that woman, which, like, Oliver Stone was not gonna let that go, like, unnoticed. But there's, there's potentially a lot of meat on the bone in terms of what happened to Edward Snowden after the story was published, and even mm -hmm. after Citizen Four came out, right? Like, there are, you know, and I know that this was made in 2016, so there was, there's a lot of sort of stuff that happened since then, but like, it's frustrating to me that 
how he got out of Hong Kong and made it to Russia is glossed over in, like I said, 10 minutes of documentary, like newsreel footage almost. And it's like, well, this would have been an actually really compelling story to tell as to how he managed to navigate that. I think the smaller, the more granular story that you tell with an Edward Snowden movie is far more interesting than this broad, basic, yeah. uh, like, biopic. Like, a, what you just said is a perfect example of that. How did he actually get there? That in itself the two is most the movie com- entire. The two most compelling scenes in the movie, to me, are A, the microchip on the carpet scene where Lakeith Stanfield has to like hold his foot over it and then he gets it smuggles it out with a Rubik's Cube and the other one is when he's in Geneva with Timothy Oliphant and sort of getting the full picture of the way that the CIA sets people up and and you know railroads people and whatnot mm-hmm. um they sort of stand I would out say the two like interesting scenes which like one of them we've kind of already talked about that i think there's a better movie in there than what this is is the scene where they're talking outside he and uh his um girlfriend partner Lindsay are talking outside of their home in hawaii yeah and he's basically saying we're being surveilled and such the the movie that is about how does that relationship function under these circumstances is an interesting movie. I have questions that I think a movie could uh, examine thoughtfully. And then I would also say, even though, even though I think Zachary Quinto is very bad in this movie, the scenes of Glenn Greenwald fighting with Jolie Richardson's Janine Gibson. Yes, I agree. I think that, I think the movie that, is examining the kind of journalistic ethical questions mm-hmm. is the Oliver Stone Edward Snowden movie that we want to actually see yeah. that maybe can have a strong opinion of something or examine, you know, things that actually still remain controversial. Like if you're going to have yeah. a like the uh, what is where is the least consensus about what Edward Snowden did? You're going to be talking about journalistic ethics and like sure. the things that still upset people. And like in 2016, which like this movie opened right before the election, let's not talk about it. Um, yeah, that's maybe the one where you can actually have a compelling, yeah, uh, you know, not to just say controversial, but like. One that's one that's going to like maybe actually upset people or get conversation started. The frustrating uh, versus... thing about Snowden is you watch it and you find all sorts of like, oh, the movie could have been about this because I think mm-hmm. along that same line, the movie could have also been about what happens after these revelations are made public, and then the story becomes was Edward Snowden a traitor or was Edward Snowden a whistleblower, and kind of obscures. Like, there's the moment in the movie where they're like, what's the worst possible outcome of this? And he's like, that ultimately people learn this information and they don't care. And um, there is a movie to be made of the way that we sort of crunch and process scandalous information now that goes through this Mm -hmm. kind of news cycle of nonsense issues and totally obscures the more you know, appropriate. Like this is where I would like somebody like Oliver Stone to fuel their frustration and their anger is into something like that. And then all of a sudden the message of 
these the the surveillance state stuff gets obscured by these questions of you know turning edward snowden into a a figure of debate should he be in jail should he be not in jail and sort of this is what we as a culture do and maybe if that entails you know uncle oliver wagging his finger and yelling at all of us for like not you know processing information well then like so be it because like maybe we do deserve that uncle oliver yelling at us for having alexis in our home <laughs> uh, i want it before we get off of the subject though of um what i think is some some of the movies more com- more compelling stuff the stuff with melissa leo and zachary quinto and tom wilkinson playing laura Poitras and glenn greenwald and ewan uh something with the Scottish thing. Ewan McCaskill. Sorry. Sorry, Ewan. Sorry to this man. Um, Tom Wilkinson also doing dialect work. That is really good, but also really funny. Yes. Like, yeah. Well, I mean, he brings that accent to bear, and uh, he's going for the Scottish in a way that I really, really appreciate. Um, he, he does it with just enough of an inflection that it feels like he might think that he's in a comedy. Yes. Granted, what he showed up for, and it feels like everyone is just playing dress-up. Sure. Uh, you know, sure. you can't blame the man. Uh, Melissa Leo, though, as Laura Poitras, less interested, like, the performance is fine. I'm interested in the in the fact that it is an Oscar winner playing an Oscar winner, which yes. is a curiosity that like doesn't happen very often. And it made me sort of like go into and I sort of like jotted some down. And I Speaking want Speaking of Kate Blanchett playing Catherine Hepburn. I was gonna say Kate Blanchett has played two Oscar winners in her career, as far as I can tell. Can you name them? Uh Lydia Tarr. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> She's played three now. Lydia Tarr is a famous fictional EGOT winner. Yeah, so now this is her third. Um, any guesses as to who who is the other one? Okay, I should know this right off the top of my head. Uh, did Bernadette win one? Did she win an no. Art Direction Oscar? No, um, a real a real person who who won a real Oscar happened okay, I... after the Aviator, but before Tarr. Oh, Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan. Yes, Bob Dylan. Uh, which uh, I'm Not There has three Oscar winners playing an Oscar winner in that movie, which I find really, really fascinating as a footnote, because it's Kate Blanchett and Christian Bale, who won his Oscar, and Heath Ledger, both of whom won their Oscar after they did. But still, I say historically it counts. Um, several have happened on TV in the Ryan Murphy-verse. Can you name the three that I'm thinking of? Uh, Jessica Lange. Uh-huh. As uh, Joan Crawford. Susan. Susan Strandon as Betty Davis. Catherine Zeta. CCJ. Oh, so four. Because, yes, you're yeah. right. Catherine Zeta-Jones as Olivia de Havilland. Yes. The other one's a male actor, it right? Is. Yes. I'd never watch Feud. Gay people, please don't. Well, it's not me. anybody She's else from me to Feud. Because Tucci played Jack Warner, but Tucci's never won an Oscar. Um... No, it's not. It's not in feud. Oh, but it's in a different Ryan Murphy project. Yes, played by a male actor. Is it Holly Hollywood? <laughs> uh, I think everybody in Hollywood. No, there there are, are real they all people fictional. In, yeah, no, they're not. Um, um, it can't be American Horror Story. Oh, you know what's funny? I've always thought that Murphy was a producer on this, but I guess he wasn't. It was another Fox or another FX thing, though. Oh, uh, Fosse Verdon. Yeah. Yeah. Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell and Fosse Verdon. 
Um, and then who else did I write down? A recent Oscar winner has done it, even though um, the person she played didn't win a competitive Oscar. They won a lifetime Oscar. No, they won a juvenile Oscar. Oh. Uh, well, uh, Renee. Renee as Judy Garland. And then the other one Looking I thought back of. to uh, Bob Dylan from her speech. Referenced Oscar winner Bob Dylan, yes. Uh, cast the rest of the. Bio, well, maybe not all of them. Uh, <laughs> of everyone that <laughs> Renee Zellweger mentions in her speech, let Kate Blanchett play. We'll say most of them. Most of them, yes. Um, then the last one I thought of was an actor playing a. Oscar-winning screenwriter, although he didn't win his screenwriting Oscar until after the portrayal. An actor playing a screenwriting Oscar winner. There has to be more of those. I would have thought so. I went through all of them, and like I didn't have time to like look up like did. I mean, thank Christ. Has Brian anybody Cranston ever played? Didn't win like, for Trumbo. Who's played George Bernard Shaw in the supporting role and whatever? Like I didn't have time to like look that up, right? <laughs> um, but this one was from the aughts, and. The win is from the aughts. Okay. Um, no, the 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 movie in question is from the aughts. The screenwriting win is also from the aughts. The actor won his Oscar oh, right. in the. They didn't win 90s. their Oscar for playing the Oscar winner, but they right? were nominated for playing. They were nominated. The screenwriter. Is it Kenneth Branagh? It's not Kenneth Branagh. Though I suppose he counts. Yes. No, because he's not portraying the the kid in Belfast. The idea is an Oscar but winner playing an Oscar, an Oscar winner. Oscar. He's played Laurence Olivier, right? Who's he? Oh, playing? yes, that's true. He's played Laurence Olivier. Now that does count because he played Laurence Olivier in uh, My, Week, My Maryland. Week with Marilyn. Yeah. Yes. Um, performance everybody remembers talks yes. about regularly. Yes. Um, hallowed. Um, no, this is an oh. actor who played a screenwriter in a movie written by that screenwriter. Oh, wild. Okay. Um, about a screen about the screen the screenwriter writing about their own life yes huh person was nominated but they're a previous oscar winner yes i'm guessing this is lead or is it supporting it's also somebody who's in the movie we're talking about today (laughs) oh uh who's oscar winners in this movie today melissa leo Mm -hmm. not tom wilkinson no Deserved an Oscar for carrying those massive baguettes. Baguettes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Sack full of baguettes. Marie, the baguettes was actually prophetic in that it was about <laughs> Tom Wilkinson's role in Michael Clayton. It's not Nicolas Cage, is it? Oh, yes, of course, because he plays Charlie he Kaufman. He plays Charlie Kaufman in Adaptation. Yes, yes, yes. Um... So anyway, I thought that was any 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 uh, uh, Garys out there who want to tweet at us with other examples of Oscar winners playing Oscar winners in movies, uh, let us know because we would. Uh, I'm I'm curious about that, and I I my trivia minded that I am, I'm always sort of uh, um, curious about that. So, uh, yeah, I Melissa Leo was Laura Poitras, I think is pretty good. I liked the one little scene where. Um, she's sort of having a heart to heart with Edward. I think that's right. very good. It's also not Melissa Leo going big, which is yeah. good. It's not. We are an effective team. It's, you know, 
I love her in Oblivion. Can I tell you, I love Melissa Leo in that I movie. I love Melissa Leo, but I don't love Melissa Leo when she goes big. When she goes big, I sometimes not... do. I don't always, but I sometimes do. I liked her in I Prisoners mean, I do a lot. maybe in, like, Passengers, where it's like, it's not necessarily big, but it's like the costume does the bigness for her. Wait, who is she in Passengers? Wait, what's that? Prisoners. Prisoners. Passengers. Yes, Prisoners. I like her a lot yeah. in Prisoners. Yes. Yeah. Listen, if Paul Dano's going to do what Paul Dano does in that movie, then you need to have somebody do even more. And that is Melissa Leo. <laughs> so, um, yeah. Uh, Greenwald, we talked about. Quinto, I think Quinto's somebody who I don't always think is a very good actor. I saw him on uh, stage in The Glass Menagerie, and I thought he was the weak link of that one, opposite Cherry Jones. Um, but... Like I said, I think the sort of scowl-faced perma rage of him is, uh, at least made me laugh. So that was good. What are the other uh, performances? Reese Fonz is in kind of a lot of this movie. As he's kind of bad in this movie too. I don't know about bad. Um, he's he's kind of mustache twirly though. He's very yeah. um, capital V villainous. I think Oliphant is actually very good as kind of the slick. CIA guy who disillusions Snowden in the field. Um, kind of a like you don't realize that like Timothy Oliphant has become such a TV actor that like mm-hmm. he's not really in movies a whole lot. He's in Amsterdam, and one of the things I told a friend uh, after I saw that movie, I was like, Amsterdam is worse for Timothy Oliphant fans than it is no, for Taylor Swift fans. No. Like, it's I I was shocked at like what he has to do in that movie. Oh, it's that bums like, me out. Um, I mean, the rest of the movie will bum you out too. Sure, um, I'm 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 debating whether to because there's still there's right now a lot of movies in theaters that I haven't seen because I haven't been able to see anything in a couple of weeks because the aforementioned work plus health issues. Um, I would be willing to bet that by Thanksgiving, Amsterdam will be on Hulu. That's you the will thing. Be fine. That's the thing. Um, but this is the danger of me being able to wait a few, you know, weeks for There'll things be more to show for up. you to immediately have to see. Well, and also it's just a disincentive for me to see things in theaters and I want to keep seeing things in theaters. Um, yeah. Logan Marshall Green, Ben Schnetzer, Lakeith Stanfield as this sort of like cadre of co-workers inside the NSA that he's working with, which again, if that's your movie, I could see an interesting movie being made mm-hmm. out of that. But like this again, just feels like I'm not quite sure what Stone wants the movie to be about. So everything seems like it's a distraction from what the movie is supposed to be about. So, right. Um, but I think they're all really good. Again, so the thing about baby boy Ben Schnetzer, who I absolutely adore, who was in um, a really bad movie that we talked about on this podcast before. Life that, and Death of John F- or Death and Life of I was going to say, F- how dare you? Um, but also, uh, first thing I ever saw him in was Pride, which we have to do. We cannot allow another June to go by without us doing Pride for this podcast. Like, we've we been We could talk about it for Bill Nye. Bill Nye, hopeful uh, best actor. Yeah, but why don't we just wait for Pride month and do it then? All right. Um, All right. All right. We'll, we'll talk about it. But anyway, Ben Schnetzer as the sort of um, firebrand uh, lesbians and gays support the minors uh, <laughs> uh, kid. And what are my lesbians? I... 
Part of it is maybe that I'm a dum-dum, but like I was fully sold on his accent in that movie. I thought he was a gives a really, really great uh, performance in that movie. And then finding out not only is he American, but he's the son of one of the most indelible soap opera performers of my childhood. Who is he's a nepotism baby? Uh yeah. Listen. I love nepotism babies. I, I, I have nothing against nepotism. Uh, his dad is Steven Schnetzer, who played Cass Winthrop on Another World through, like, my entire childhood. And, like, was this sort of, um, he was the lawyer. He was the, like, hotshot lawyer in town. And he was this, like, huge ladies man. Even though, look him up, like, he's a handsome guy, but he's not, like, this devastating James Bond type, which is kind of how he was written as this just sort of, like, absolute, like, crushing it all over town and everybody was in love with him and um just a really interesting character and he and linda dano's character um were like i think one time former lovers but like by the time i started watching we're just like best friends and they were like kind of cosmopolitan in a way that like another world is really interesting in that way where it's like i don't know like the uh this was sort of when soaps were really fucking great and um so he and Linda Dano were this sort of like platonic, like cool hip <laughs> pair of adults. And it was interesting that like I sort of just grew up kind of idolizing them. But finding out that he was Ben Schnetzer's dad blew my mind and endeared me to the kid even more. And he's asked to play the most ridiculous character in this movie, who is like the tech whiz who's like irreverent. And like he's kind of like skeezy i'm not a like i'm not a regular tech analyst i'm a cool tech analyst right like yeah. i've got my like my flannel and uh you know my facial hair is all unkempt and i don't care about like talking talking frankly about everything that is going on and i'm going to use my weird overly aggressive snow white metaphors and um and yet i am helpless to find him anything but endearing <laughs> So I'm like, oh, look at him like, spying helpless on is a everybody great word like choice. that. Like, uh, yeah, um, what's that? Helpless is a great word choice for uh, what you're describing because that that I, I do truly think uh, that's the that's the charm there. Yeah. Um, no, I was like when Ben Schnetzer showed up based because of Death and Life of John F. Donovan, I was like, oh no. Oh no. <laughs> and he's actually one of the better performers in this movie. Yeah. Um, yeah. He's interesting. Can we talk when about Shailene Woodley for a little bit? Let's. So I want to sort of bring up where she's I don't think she's, she's bad at. in this movie. Granted, I don't, I don't either. What she's scripted to do is The most very thankless. Silly. It's a, it's a, it's if I was the real woman... Yes. I would be so pissed. Okay, about... so here's what I also thought. So, like, Edward Snowden is not allowed to return to the United States. Is sort of a man without a country. He's, you know, trying. they're trying to find a place to go without extradition or whatever. He ends up in Moscow in the 2010s. And we find out at the end of this movie, and this is the thing we already knew from watching Citizen Four, um... That she, at the time this all happened, was in the United States and was sort of hunkered down with her family and was not forced to leave the country. And by everything we know, probably wasn't able to be charged with anything. It's not like she was under, like, 
federal indictment or whatever, or else they wouldn't have let her leave the country. But this is a woman who, from her own free will, decided to move willingly to Russia to live forever with Edward Snowden. And I'm going to tell you this right now. (laughs) I am not, I don't care how much I loved a person or was fond of them. You will never be down so bad. I will absolutely, you can count on it. If there is a situation where it's me moving to Russia to be with your ass or me staying here and like being sad about our breakup, I will be sad about our breakup. I am not moving to (laughs) Moscow or wherever outlier town in Russia in 2013 for you. Okay, but this is also one of the problems of the movie because like that obviously takes, you know, some decision making and that like that is something we don't understand does the movie take any attempt to make us understand it or make us understand her even if we don't understand the decision absolutely not because she is in the states until she is not in the states and we don't see we see their relationship leading up to him fleeing Mm -hmm. but we don't see anything part of that decision making process and i feel like it's partly because like in reality, there's a lot of, like, it doesn't seem like they talk about how much in communication they were together. Obviously, they would have had to have been at some point. She can't just go find him and be like, hi, do you still want to be together? Because yes. I have no idea, because we haven't been talking. Yes. Yeah. Like, so, like, maybe that's part of the reason why we don't see any of that in the movie. But, like... Mm-hmm. That in and of itself is a movie deciding to make that type of leap for the one that you love. And it, she's Lindsay is just weird blogger who likes taking pictures of herself <laughs> naked and also teaches pole dancing lesson. I would be pissed about this movie if I was her. Like, I would be too. She's a full human being. And it's just like, and again, kind of made a choice that I would have never been able to make in my entire life. And like that yeah. speaks to somebody's character or how much she loved him or like some kind of extreme emotion that I would like to be able to tap into. Um, I want to talk about Shaylee and Woodley's career at this point, though. Um, she was somebody basically debuts her film debut more or less is the descendants. Um, certainly the, the, the way that she's sort of like thrust into the Hollywood conversation I had being um, a dumb, dumb, but also I think maybe for work I had to do this. I watched a good bit of the early season or two of secret life of the American teenager, which was a terrible show on ABC family at the time, which was this like, you know, uh, it was the, the woman who uh, created seventh heaven. This was her like follow up to seventh heaven. And you could kind of tell, and it was, you know, the teens are up to, they're having the sex and they're taking the topless photos of themselves and everything is crazy. And the cast was like cuckoo bananas, weird were like molly ringwald i think played her mom and uh, it was not a good show so imagine my surprise then when like oscar buzz comes wafting out of the new alexander payne movie in 2011 that the the daughter of george clooney's character is getting oscar buzz and lo and behold it's shailene woodley and i'm like oh the terrible actress from the terrible show i don't think she's a terrible (laughs) actress but i think that show made me think she was right um she 
kind of rudely is snubbed for the descendants, which isn't to say that I think she's so great that she had to be nominated, but like it really, really seemed like she was going to get nominated. And it was a pretty big surprise, I think, that she wasn't, even though. Right. She's one of the better things about that movie that the I two, hate. The two surprises that morning in that category were McCarthy and McTeer, right? People thought maybe one or the other, but not both. Mm-hmm. And so, because it was Octavia Spencer was definitely getting in. Jessica Chastain was definitely getting in. Berenice Beja was definitely getting in. And so people sort of assumed Shailene Woodley and then either Janet McTeer or Melissa McCarthy. And most people thought, well, Melissa McCarthy's in a broad comedy. It's not going to happen. But, like, Janet McTeer, Janet McTeer was also... a previous nominee. Right. But she was also in a movie that, like, everybody thought was Bananas, Albert Knobs. Right. And so... Oh, boy. Um, both of them get in. Shailene Woodley gets left out. And she's never really come close again. Although, 2013, she's in The Spectacular now. Her and Miles Teller. And she's really good in that like that's a movie remember when we had our conversation with who when roxana was on about uh film directors who we love who sort of like retreated into television because that's where the work was i would like james ponsult to go back to making movies um because what did he end up doing the circle well, this, yeah, The Circle was a movie, wasn't it? Um, but- he also did this um, movie at Sundance about kids. I, I think it's called Summering, and no one liked it. Yeah, so maybe that's the problem there maybe isn't television. Although it felt like to me that like he you know got sucked into developing some sort of television show. Oh, it was um, Sorry for Your Loss, the Elizabeth Olsen show on Facebook Watch, mm-hmm. which by all indication, everybody I've heard who watched it said it was great and she was great, but it was Facebook watch. So like nobody fucking watched it. Um, ironically. So, but anyway, I think that the spectacular now is a pretty good movie and smashed is really good. Smashed is tremendous. She's like, um, uh, or, uh, who's it's Mary Elizabeth Winstead, right? Yep. So Aaron Paul, so fucking good in smashed smashed is for me. And I know there's different things, but remember how like, Everybody flipped for heaven knows what as yeah. this sort of like arduous movie about addiction or whatever. And like smashed to me does what a lot of people I think really liked about uh, uh, that movie. Anyway, um, she's Shailene Woodley back to Shailene Woodley. She's in the Greg Araki movie, white bird in a blizzard that like nobody saw, but me, <laughs> I uh, saw that movie in the theater. It's not bad. It's kind of interesting. And, um, there's some uh, eye-opening queer shit in that movie that, like, isn't enough of the movie, but, like, whatever, whatever. She's Come back to this Greg Araki. She kind of gets caught in the wreckage of the Amazing Spider-Man movies, the Mark Webb uh, Amazing Spider-Man movies. I wanted to bring this up, okay. because this is the era, uh, or thereabouts, she... Okay. <laughs> yeah, go on, go on. Well, where she plays... Uh, Mary Jane. She's she's cast as Mary Jane Watson in an uncredited cameo. I don't remember exactly how much of it was cut out of the movie and what she remained. had several scenes that were cut out of Amazing Spider-Man Two, and they said they were just going to 
put them at the beginning of Amazing Spider-Man 3. And then there was which, no Amazing uh, Spider-Man 3. Because Amazing Spider-Man 2 is an amazing piece of shit. Well, but also, that, I uh, bet you... too much going on. So, like, it's totally a movie you can tell they cut entire plot strands out of. But I also feel like we probably would have gotten an Amazing Spider-Man 3 if the uh, Sony-Marvel deal wasn't on the horizon because I think they basically were right. like, let's put the brakes on that until we see what we can do with Marvel. And then by it's 2016 that I think I'm not going to ask you cause you wouldn't know uh, Captain America civil war, which is when Spider-Man first shows up in the MCU. I think that's 2016. Um, it's 2016 or 27. So like that was probably like, you know, Shailene kind of got screwed by that whole thing. Um, well, but also nobody, really liked the Mark Webb ones. Right, like, but I imagine her her bank account would have been enhanced by her being that. able to yeah. star in Amazing Spider-Man 3. Um, but 2014 is really good for her bank account because she stars in The Fault in Our Stars, which is like a huge surprise success. And um, it's sort of the... She becomes the YA girl at that point because it's The Fault in Our Stars and Divergent are both in the same year. And it's like <laughs> both sides of the YA coin, right? It's the romantic drama about a girl who's dying which is like a subgenre in and of itself and then um the ya uh fantasy dystopia adventure right which is divergent which starts great for her like the first divergent movie is a success and she's at the center of it and it's like this is going to be her hunger games and very quickly for like they they did not waste any time churning out the next two which was probably the best possible solution because like ultimately people lost interest quicker than they could churn out the movies and And they got rapid i mean like they were never good but they got rapidly much worse too well and the the original plan was to very much like the hunger games movies split the third movie, which ended up being called Allegiant, which is also like, this was also when I think we knew that like things are not good in Divergent Land is when the sequels were called Insurgent and Allegiant, just because, and I know that's what the books were, but like, it's dumb. Um, I forget what, I don't think that the the unfilmed uh, finale, because they split the third book in two, and I think they announced a different title for it, and I don't think it was Allegiant Part 2. Well, I think the working title was Allegiant Part 2, and then I don't know what it ended up being. Maybe it was just like there was a meme online of like, what the hell are they going to call this dumb thing? Um, I never saw it. I saw Insurgent. I did not see Allegiant. And that Allegiant is released the same year as Snowden. And so this feels like Mm -hmm. down bad, kind of like things are are not great. But uh, good things are around the corner because 2017 comes along and she's in Big Little Lies. And... From the outside, people looked at that cast and was like, Reese, Nicole, uh, you know, it's just like big things are happening. Adam Scott's in this and Laura Dern's in this and Zoe Kravitz is in this. And then it's like Shailene Woodley sort of felt like, I think from the outside, a lot of people were like, oh, she kind of sticks out as, you know, not as good as these other women. I think she's very good. I think everybody I, I think everybody on Big Little Lies was really good, actually. Um and the first season of that show, especially, is good for everybody. I think everybody's career mm-hmm. gets a good solid boost from that. And she didn't really 
do a ton with that in terms of her movie career. Like she's in a drift, which I didn't see, but that was the one where she's on a boat, right? I did see it. It has the dumbest, dumbest, dumbest twist. Funny. Um, she's in the Mauritanian where she's like, uh, Jodie Foster's assistant or like co-counsel or whatever the hell. I was like, wait, oh, already we're like, what's the Mauritanian? Exactly. Uh, Well, I mean, you talk about like of the movies that like were swallowed up by pandemic era, like the Mauritanian really. No, that movie did better because of the pandemic. If that movie, if the pandemic hadn't happened, that movie would have been straight to VOD. But I mean, in terms of our memory, like, you know what I mean? Like that, I, I think, I think we don't remember it because of that. And um, instead, we got Jodie Foster accepting a Golden Globe over Zoom in pajamas. That's right. With her dog. With her with her partner, though, so that was cool. But And their dog. Oh, and their dog, right. But it was, at the very least, on Jodie Foster's long and leisurely timeline towards publicly coming out, I feel like that was finally um, being on a Zoom, accepting an award in your PJs with your wife uh, is a good one. So, interestingly, though, she's got a few... Um, kind of fascinating movies coming up she's going to be in ferrari the michael mann uh uh italiano uh i'm doing the hand thing um yeah. uh with adam driver and penelope cruz so that's cool you know what i mean like that at the very least i'm interested she's also uh currently apparently filming or right around this time um the gamestop movie with uh, the Craig Gillespie-directed GameStop movie with Seth Rogen and Sebastian Stan and Paul Dano. So that's cool, also. I'm interested in that. So, like, good things, perhaps, uh, you know, coming down the line. And she's also in an upcoming series on Showtime called Three Women with Betty Gilpin and DeWanda Wise. So that's cool. Um I'm interested. I'm hopeful for Shailene. I think she deserves good things because, like, she's she's had a real weird career for somebody who's so young. Yeah. So good for her. Snowden does not do anything good for her. But no. um, yeah, who else in this? So okay, Nicolas Cage. We got to say it is in essentially a scene and a half in this show. Yes, he's Snowden's early, At the very beginning of a long, movie. early, early mentor on the long line of mentors. He's the earliest one. He's, by all accounts, like a good one, right? He works in the security state. He works, you know, for the government, but he's by all accounts a good one. And at the end of the movie, when it, it's a f- hilariously dumb scene where Snowden goes public with the thing, and we see Nicolas Cage in his living room being like, "The kid did it." Like, all proud of him or whatever. <laughs> it's so stupid. But, like, I don't think this is, like, Laurence Olivier at work or whatever. But, like, it's a scene and a half. I don't know how you can find devise any kind of, like, qualitative judgment about Nicolas Cage. This is Nicolas why they're Cage. not a serious organization. It's so, just that Nicolas Cage was in a movie. They, uh, Chris is talking about the Razzies. The Razzies nominated Nicolas Cage for worst supporting actor and at this point again it's the Razzies at work it's essentially them going by reputation which is weird because by this point i guess cage what hadn't quite yet rebounded into the sort of mandy and pig phase of his career where now i feel like 
we are rebounding a bit on uh, Nicolas Cage is good, actually. After this was probably in the midst of a lot of his like direct to direct to streaming, direct to video sort of stuff, which was not a great era and is not exactly over. He's still making eight billion movies that like people don't ever hear about. But um yeah, 20, 2018 was the year where like he makes Mandy and like people really like that. And he was the voice in Spider-Verse, which like was really cool. But like he's just making a movie like something called Looking Glass and something called The Humanity Bureau and something called Between Worlds. And they all have the same kind of poster, which is just sort of like <laughs> his face. floating heads over some sort of like dystopia looking thing or like <laughs> uh, maybe it's a thriller or whatever. And it's just like cash grab after cash grab. And this happens i mean again it's like still kind of happening but like pig last year i thought was a highlight i thought one of the best things he'd ever he's tremendous in it if this renfield movie ever gets made oh no i'm at least excited to see it where he's dracula and nicholas holt is renfield (laughs) like (laughs) i hope it i hope we eventually get to see it i don't know if it's going to be great but i'm into it he was in a movie at tiff this year that i don't think anybody i know talked about which was butcher's crossing which was the western yeah i didn't hear anybody talk about that either where that was the one where uh he was filming where he was on the horse named rain man (laughs) who uh he ended up talking to who was the other person in that round table who had ridden rain man i know andrew jonathan majors jonathan majors because andrew garfield was on the other side of the table like living his life laughing his ass off at the story it was um we've clipped it before it's uh, really good i also didn't see the unbearable weight of massive talent did you see that i didn't see it either i i like some people like i'm I'm back into a more positive nicholas cage frame of mind lately but like not that positive where i want to like watch (laughs) Well, I want to watch a movie where the whole idea is like, you know, self-referential Nicolas Cage is, you know, a real life James Bond kind of a thing. I don't know what the exact deal is with that, but it felt like a little too winky for my taste. Exactly. I'll see it eventually. Um, I'm glad you kind of uh, tangentially brought it back to TIFF because this is a TIFF world premiere. Yes. And when we talk about like DOA tiff world premieres like this is a movie i definitely lump into that category there are those um, movies we refer to a lot there are those movies where you go into tiff and you look at the schedule and like choices have to be made and you have to be a little bit mercenary about what you're seeing and what you're not and a lot of the times the stuff that's going to open soon you tend to not see because like again you need to like make your priorities and i'll be seeing this soon eventually and then even further then there are the movies which is like Oh, this mo- this movie opens while we're still in Toronto. So like yeah. that tends to be at least lately a foreboding omen. And I guess it wasn't always this way because I went back as far as 2010. Um which is sort of I feel like I feel like everything after Slumdog Millionaire feels like modern tiff like Yeah. Um so 2010 the movie that opened at the end of the festival was The Town, the Ben Affleck movie, The Town, which eventually, like, things turn out pretty well for The Town. It gets almost a Best Picture nomination. It gets other Oscar nominations. Jeremy Renner is nominated. It 
is seen as a decent success. People seem to like it. I don't really like that movie very much, but like people seem to like it. And like, certainly that movie isn't like a cursed movie. 2011 drive plays Toronto and then opens at the end of Toronto, but it had played can and it was a little bit of a well known quantity. And TIFF was almost like the premiere. You know what I mean for it? Sometimes Mm -hmm. studios use TIFF as like, a way to piggyback onto uh, someone else throwing you your premiere party, right? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that seemed to, like, and Drive ultimately falls short of Oscar expectations. I think a lot of people were expecting Albert Brooks to get nominated for that movie. Um, does it get nominated for, it gets nominated for sound, right? Uh, I forget if it's sound mixing or editing. But one of those yes, two. one of the sounds. Right? And then 2012... The master screens a TIFF and then opens very, very, very small right at the end of TIFF. And that in the 70 millimeter run right. for that movie. So that movie ultimately, I think, overperforms at the Oscars in, in relative to what I thought it was going to. I kind of thought, because remember, the reception for Paul Thomas Anderson's The Master was a lot of people being like, I don't get it. <laughs> A lot of people scratching their heads. And, like, even if you want to say it overperformed because it got those three acting three nominations. Three acting nominations. That's, that's still only one branch of the Academy, though. Like, that's that still, doesn't though. mean that it's a movie that was liked. Um, but it's three nominations it's in the, like, most visible. It's your favorite Paul Thomas Anderson. It's my favorite. Really? Tell me more. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm fascinated. I'm fascinated by that. I, I, I've always been sort of cold to that movie. So, I love it. Okay. It's great. Okay. We're never going to be able to do an episode on it, so now's your chance. Tell tell me tell me why the master is so great. Um, I mean, it's been a minute since I've seen it. I think uh, you know, we can't even call it late stage Paul Thomas Anderson no. movie. Um, but I think ultimately it's kind of an examination uh of like a, a lot of the controversy at the time was like scientology right people like, were it's expecting it to be the scientology movie i watch it and you know there scientology was not the only right. like upstart american religion right. at the time too and i just think it's kind of a movie about a certain type of generation of men who you know especially at that like point in american society you know you were given this guidebook of what uh what you needed to have a good life mm-hmm. and of course that's a perfect time for you know proprietary religions or you know manipulative bullshit religions to take advantage of people too and i i mean like that movie ultimately like the emotional journey of it and what this uh very damaged man needs to find peace and happiness uh is outside of the the rules that are all given to him and i think the way that it you know examines that and examines like control the controlling uh sides of american life are yeah. uh very interesting and move me i think philip seymour hoffman's tremendous in that movie that's probably my biggest compliment um yeah. that i'll pay to that movie i think he's very very good um 2014 certainly the greatest oscar nominated performance where someone says pig fuck 100 <laughs> um 2014 i put on the list the disappearance of eleanor rigby i'm not sure what the ceiling was 
on expectations for disappearance of Eleanor Rigby, but that was one that at least a lot of people had their eye on early in that season. And then after TIFF, it sort of fell off the map, sort of got lost in a morass of what's the real version of this movie. It was split into Mm -hmm. his and hers. And then it also screened as the combined movie and nobody knew even like among the small fraction of the population who even knew about this movie, they didn't quite know what version they were supposed to see and <laughs> or, or even which version they were seeing when right. they sat down in the theater. Yeah. Right. So uh, that wasn't great. 2015, I think is where this sort of bad omen of the movie, the TIFF movie that opens af- at the end of the festival it starts because in 2015 you have black mass, which is like, an unadulterated flop like had big oscar expectations and uh, nobody liked it and it fell flat sicario which was liked by quite a lot more people but ultimately did not score with the oscars the way i think it maybe could have if it had been if it had rolled out slightly differently i know you don't like that movie um i i have complicated feelings about that movie because i initially really loved it but the more you kind of sit with that movie, I think the problems with the script and it's scripted by Taylor Sheridan, who we all know I don't like. Right. Um, I, I think it's a movie that directs itself in one direction, but can't uh, can't get past the fact that like I think where it's coming from on a script level is quite compromised. I think Emily Blunt's tremendous in that movie. I think she deserved an Absolutely. Oscar nomination. Um, mm-hmm. Also playing Tiff that year that opened at the end of the festival, Pawn Sacrifice, which was the uh, uh, Bobby Fischer chess movie. Sure. Um, that didn't really do much of anything. Also, it didn't play Tiff, but Everest opened that same weekend at the end of... And it just feel like... Didn't that, like, open Venice? <laughs> it was another one where it's just like, there were these big expectations that ultimately, like, and Everest isn't a bad movie. But, like, it became a real non-factor in that award season, even in categories, like, I don't even think it got, like, visual It didn't get any nominations. Yeah, we could talk about it. Um, But I just feel like this, even if you're not a TIFF movie making a weird transition into opening, it's just a dead spot in the calendar because everybody's attention is elsewhere. It also, by the way, is usually right around when the Emmys are. You know what I mean? Like, just... The, the attention economy is not on your side. 2016 yeah. Snowden opens right at the end of TIFF after playing TIFF and... Uh, craters. Yeah, craters. 2017 is the great mother debacle where uh, we've all... We've talked about it at length. Um, people were mad at the movie and the cinema score was an F and um, it's the rightful number one F cinema score movie, some might say, and uh, some people's uh, allies might have abandoned them on the quest to put it up to that uh, position. I th- I think it was a cosmically correct placement. For uh, I, we, uh... we can talk about it <laughs> forever. Um, Listen, as someone who watches uh, Survivor um, at a compulsory level at this point, uh-huh. uh, sometimes your strategy, you just gotta, you, in strategies, you just gotta let uh, dead fish die. Wow, are you referring to me as a dead fish? You are not the dead an fish. An ally who has the, helped this, you get you past are not the, dead the merge. Fish. You didn't realize what the dead fish was. 
I would have used my immunity idol to save you, but you abandoned me on the battlefield. (laughs) Uh, What season are you on right now? What season are you watching right now? Uh, I I just uh, recorded with Kevin Jacobson yesterday. We were talking Survivor. I am on 26, which a friend and former guest Kevin said is one of his least favorite. It's uh, fans versus favorite Caramon. Caramon. I keep in my head saying fans versus favorite Caramon. Come on, fan favorite. Caramoan, um, there's a lot of ugliness to Caramoan, but um It's it's a very bitter season. I definitely have a favorite that is maybe a surprise to me who? at this point. Do you love I Malcolm? Am... I hope you love Malcolm. I love Malcolm so much. Uh Malcolm was just eliminated. Oh, from so heartbreaking. He pulled off one of the best I moves. I don't that love season. Malcolm this season because I'm like, I do think he makes a lot of the wrong decisions. Like he, he attaches does. himself he to Ultimately, I think what will be a dead fish. Um, Malcolm's options were limited, though, because Malcolm was on the outside of that real creepy Philip Shepard uh, hierarchy on mm-hmm. the fan uh, the favorites tribe, and Malcolm was never going to succeed there. So I think he just sort of decided to play the insurgent. And okay, in twenty five. I do like Malcolm a lot more, save yeah. for a few moments where he's like, oh, well, her estrogen is making her make this decision. Yes. I was like, you better fucking he's, watch it, listen, buddy, he's a, I want to like he's a He's a bro at heart who I think is a bro with a heart of gold. But uh, he has his moments. But, like, Malcolm and Denise in Philippines were amazing. I loved them so much. I, I would just argue that I don't know... Well, no, because he and Denise kind of orchestrate a really big move in 25 that was very successful. But broadly, I don't think Malcolm has made great decisions. You're not wrong. You're not wrong. Um, no. Who do you like? Point, so who's your favorite? I think I'm rooting for Cochran in 26. Oh, is this controversial? The it's not controversial. Face. I think he's a sort of divisive character in, in Survivor. That's probably fair. And granted, I haven't seen his original season. Um, I, I like somebody who can, I tend to root for people on Survivor who can assess the whole group dynamic as it is. And I think he's doing that the best. He's playing a, I also really despise Reynolds. (laughs) So anyone who can, uh, I also despise Reynolds, but he's one of my favorite villains who like, never came back for a second season. I always thought they should have brought back Reynolds for another season because he's so very much himself and such like a stereotypical, like, I don't know if he works in finance, but like finance bro, right? Like he's he has finance a real bro estate energy. agent. Right. Which, okay. Similar. Same thing. Um, that's why they're always like, he seems like such a car salesman. Cause it's like, that's his job. Yes. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, no, um, Cochran had a tremendous read on that season. And at the point that you are at, he, uh, he, really had that game uh, in the palm of his hand, I will say. Um, Brenda is finally starting to be more of a character, and, like, she's at this point a clean slate, you know? There's no reason for me to not like her, so I'm rooting for her, but at this point I'm like, she's probably not lasting much longer. The interesting thing about Brenda is she was one of the most dynamic people on her original season. She was, like, she really like tried to take the game in her hand. She had like, she played big for a while and it's interesting that she came back to Caramoan and played small. Um, Is it Caramoan or Caramoan? I've been saying Caramoan. I think they, I think Jeff Probst called it Caramoan, but um, okay. Yeah. Well, see, 
And I'm pretty sure, like, the first confessional from Brenda this season happened, like, an episode ago. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. It takes a very um, long while for her to... I mean, and the herself. rest of the team, like, I want to root for Dawn, but, like, I don't know if that's going to happen. But also, yeah. she is also frustrating as well. Yes. Philip, I understand why that would be really hard to be Ugh. around a lot. Ugh. However, I thought Philip was great TV in Ugh. a way that Philip... I couldn't was so unintentionally funny sometimes that like Ugh, I, that man was comedy gold with some of the shit that came out of his mouth um the way he treated francesca was so odious to me that like yeah, i couldn't i yeah. could never get past it yeah i i agree um and then i mean like it's not a season where I really feel like I'm rooting for anyone so it's like it's cochran yeah. that's like rising above i think it's an interesting season that doesn't have a whole ton of rooting interest beyond, like I said, like I was hardcore rooting for Malcolm for a while. And then when he went out, I was like, well, I don't know what I'm doing. Like, well, okay. So Andrea is the one who like fully, uh, got into the staring contest with Malcolm, right? Over this idol that he yes. never dug up. Yes. I loved that. That, that made was me great. like her a lot more, yes. even though I think she's been playing a terrible game. Andrea's another interesting one because her original season was the season where it was like Boston Rob's fourth season and it was basically designed to like let Boston Rob win. And it's my least favorite season of all time, basically because everybody totally rolls over for him. And she was like the one person who tried to make a move on that season. And it couldn't happen because nobody else would work with her. And that made me want to root for her subsequently after that. But it's interesting. I'm glad you're into Survivor. More talk about this. I root for anyone who is opposed to Boston Rob. Truly Same. anyone. Same. Um, All right. Back to the TIFF thing. Uh, yes. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, uh, no. listeners who don't do Survivor. Sorry um, also, but also you should watch Survivor. Um, 2018, White Boy Rick uh, opened at the end <laughs> of TIFF and genuinely truly did not talk to a single person who saw that movie at that festival but i think that's the thing is you you are disincentivized to see usually we'll talk about the next year wasn't the case but like you you can be disincentivized to see a movie like white boy rick at tiff because it's opening so soon but then you don't get the tiff boost because of that and by the time you open people are still in tiff mode so like it's it's a real tough needle to thread um 2019 Hustlers managed to hold on to the attention, but ultimately the Oscars, the Oscars failed Hustlers more than like, I would say more than anyone else. No, Hustlers was probably smart to go to TIFF right before it opened because like it helped get it a big opening box office. The movie eventually was a hundred million dollar movie. Like, yeah, the thing that I talked about, about like using TIFF as your premiere party, like that worked out really well for that. Mm -hmm. The other one, the other side of that coin was the Goldfinch also opened right after tiff and that one that could have opened whenever and i don't think it does any better so i don't think that's a strategic thing so we arrive at 2022 and the case study this year is the woman king which kind of did the hustlers thing where it premiered at toronto people really liked it i think more so than they thought they would because i think the trailer had a lot of people scratching their heads including me um and it's because they kept all the good stuff out of the trailer. <laughs> it's not just that, though. I think the trailer is strategically dubious. Avoiding plot lines. Not just avoiding plot lines. I think it's trying to sell a movie that the movie isn't. And I think right. it's... Uh, it made, it's made The trailer made it seem like they were covering for deficiencies in the movie. And it's, yeah. it's the Natalie Portman, Milos Forman 
you know, you're acting like you're a trailer for a bad movie, but you're a trailer for a good movie. And right. Um, but anyway, people really liked The Woman King at Toronto, and it premiered, it used that boost to premiere to really strong box office numbers. Perhaps not as strong as we wanted, but like strong. Like The Woman King is a box office success. Right. And so now the question is what do they do with it? What, where do we go through it through Oscar season? Because it's a movie that deserves to have a strong presence in the Oscar season. I'm curious as to how much it will. Mm -hmm. I think Viola is a very strong contender in best actress, but not guaranteed. I think you could make a supporting actress case for Tusuma Bedu, but I don't know if it'll happen. And Mm -hmm. craft stuff is possible kind of across the board, but I'm not sure it'll happen. Well, there's the two, I think, biggest questions on the rest of the season, or maybe maybe even three if you include Babylon, are all these Mm large-scale, expensive, though much more expensive than The Woman King actually is, but like in terms of scale of the movie, it's, you know, probably direct competition. Avatar, Wakanda, Babylon. Uh huh. Yeah. Because it's these big, splashy, yeah. epic storytelling. You know, I ideas. thought you were going to say that the the big unanswered question is whether Maria Bello is going to get an Oscar nomination as screenwriter or producer <laughs> for The Woman King. Which, if it gets nominated, the original screenplay is very competitive. No, but if it's if it gets a Best Picture nomination, which you know it's a list of ten, so right, I think it's it's on the board for it. Then Maria Bello. Mm-hmm. Oscar nominee at last, because she'd been snubbed for The Cooler and History of Violence. Finally, her moment. As we all expected it would be for a movie about female warriors in Africa starring Viola Davis. And that's finally Maria Bello's moment. Um, So yeah, so the sort of, I hesitate to call it a curse of Tiff, but there is something to be said of, you know, opening your movie in the shadow of this big film festival. Right. In the shadow of a hundred other movies. Right, right. Okay, yeah. so let's start to wrap up on Snowden. Are there any other stray thoughts you have about this film? Uh, the terrible Peter Gabriel song that ends the movie. Oh, I wanted to look this up and I forgot. Uh- which, like was maybe the closest thing lingering it around in the Oscar season, like as it got closer to nominations, got a Grammy nomination. It sure and did. It's like, okay. So um, Peter Gabriel, I feel like has had at least a few golden globe nominations throughout his career. And I'm looking this up right now. He's been nominated for one Oscar in his career. He, he uh, wrote the song from Wally down to earth that he oh, got an original song. song nomination for. Um, he's a three-time Golden Globe nominee. He wrote an original so- or the original score for the Passion or the t- the Last Temptation of Christ, not the Passion of the Christ, the the <laughs> Scorsese movie, The Last Temptation of Christ. He also that score is amazing. Wrote the original score for Rabbit Proof Fence, the uh, Philip sure. Noyce movie, and Noyce. both of those got Globe nominations. And then he got uh, again an original song nomination for. Um, Wally Grammys he's I mean like Grammy like obviously his you know music career and whatever but as a songwriter for movies I feel like he's one of those people like Bono where you go to him to write a movie for um, a song about something sort of pertinent and like 
world hist- like current eventsy. I want to say he wrote. Who wrote the song from Mandela, Long Walk to Freedom? Was that Bono or was that Peter That's Gabriel? Bono. That was Bono. Okay. But I feel like Peter Gabriel has some of the stuff. Again, I really wish I had remembered to go and, and uh, search this stuff out. I feel deficient in this. Um, oh, and now it's just soundtrack credits. Sorry, everybody. I failed you. But anyway, uh-huh. I just feel like in general, Peter Gabriel every once in a while will show up with a song to a movie and it's like, well, you couldn't get Bono. So you got Peter Gabriel. Cause Peter Gabriel is another one of those people who like involves himself in um, like charity stuff, but also just sort of like humanitarian. Humani- Thank you. That's the word I was looking for humanitarian stuff. Um, I remember back in the day. Oh God, I was such a VH one boy. What a, what a <laughs> weird nerd I was. Um, I watched a ton of VH one VH one had a, um like vh1 honors thing for a while where they would do this like concert with uh you know for a charity and it, this yeah. one was for peter gabriel's charity i believe and like he basically was like the focal point of but it was him and it was natalie merchant and michael stipe and joan osborne and the tony rich project and i'm trying to remember who else and it was this very sort of like earnest like imagine a night with peter gabriel natalie merchant and michael Seif that was earnest like i i uh you know try to hide your surprise but anyway um this very sort of like solemn and earnest sort of concert for whatever humanitarian cause uh peter gabriel was supporting that year and like very admirable but also like he's he wrote um the song about Stephen Biko that I don't know whether was part of Cry Freedom or was sort of like parallel to it. But anyway, so um, I always sort of slot him mentally with Bono in these sort of, uh, you know, solemn humanitarian songwriting efforts. And I think that was... Well, and from an Oscar perspective, too, it's that level of musician or rock star that like absolutely it's a little bit closer of an off-ramp to an Oscar nomination if they ever, you know, do it. Granted, Peter Gabriel only has one, but, like, he's certainly of that, uh, you know... Yes. Echelon. Yes. I I think you can probably... My guess would be you can pencil in LCD sound system this year for White Noise for that very reason. It's my favorite part of that movie, pretty much. And I really, really That's hope... That's what everybody gets, says. I really, really hope it gets nominated. I'm also now looking up... Um, Obviously, I wonder if it sticks in Peter Gabriel's craw that Phil Collins has an Oscar and he doesn't. Like, (laughs) I wonder if there's, like, lingering Genesis resentment there. Um, Like, Phil Collins, a three-time Oscar nominee, we should remember, uh, uh, for songs from... He did uh, Against All Odds, of course. He had that song Two Hearts from that movie Buster that he starred in. Uh, in 1988, and then of course he wins the Oscar for the Tarzan song, famously beating um, Amy Mann and the South Park guys, and um, When She Loved Me from Toy Story 2. And it's just like, fucking Phil Collins! Everybody's so mad. <laughs> All right. Um, I don't think I have anything else in my notes. Let me see. Glenn Greenwald. Oh, yeah. <laughs> The rare movie that's asking us to enjoy ourselves while we're getting Glenn Greenwald and Piers Morgan in the same movie, which, like, <laughs> oh, boy. Um, bah, 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 bah. Oh, with Reese Ifans and Nicolas Cage is, I think, uh, 
somewhat chaotic with and in a movie not necessarily as deserved but like just any movie which is like you're getting a with Reese Fonz and Nicolas Cage is probably promising a lot can we talk about the most chaotic with and I have ever seen please John C. Riley in Stars at Noon gets <laughs> and with John C. Riley. What? That should be illegal. Claire Denis, you are you are being deliberately provocative. I feel like you are poking at us with that. I don't know. Or John C. Riley's uh, people, his manager, his agent. All right. Well, good good for John C. Riley's agent, I guess. You've earned your Christmas yeah. bonus this year. All right, Chris, we're going to play the IMDb game. Would you tell our listeners what the IMDb game is? Absolutely. Every week we end our episodes with the IMDb game where we challenge each other uh, to name the top four titles that IMDb says an actor or actress is most known for. If the, any of those titles are television, voice-only performances, or non-acting credits. We'll mention that up front. After two wrong guesses, we get the reigning titles release years as a clue. If that's not enough, it just becomes a free-for-all of hints. We do love it's a free-for-all of hints. All right, Chris, would you like to give or guess first? How about I give first? All right. Switch things up. All right. Get a little crazy. All right. Uh, so I went into the Oliver Stone filmography. As we mentioned, he's not doing as many fiction movies. However, uh, Joe Reed, one of his most recent ones, Joe is a uh, massive fan of the motion picture Savages. Savages. Among the headliners of the film Savages is one... Uh, constantly uh being told is a movie star though box office will tell you he is not people are rejecting it is taylor kitsch oh i think we i think we've stopped calling taylor kitsch a, <laughs> a movie star at this point yes but there was that like four-year period sure where like box office star. well and, and then and then like, no he's not yeah that was mary we rejected it i feel bad uh, for listen taylor kitsch on friday night lights very much earned the uh the shot that hollywood took on him at that point like he was so good on that show and it just speaking of which there is one television on his phone. okay so friday night lights friday night okay lights. i imagine even though they were flops he was the headliner of both john carter and battleship so i'm gonna guess both of those both of those are correct okay so now it's a matter of Was he Gambit in X-Men Origins Wolverine? I'm going to guess X-Men Origins Wolverine. Did I get it? Four for four? You got Woo! it. You got a perfect score for Taylor <laughs> Kitsch. Fuck you. Uh, he is not Gambit. You will... He, he, famously, Gambit has, I believe, never shown up in any of the X-Men movies. Who is he in X-Men Origins? Someone named Remy LeBeau? That's Gambit. Yeah. Does he throw cards yeah. in the movie? yeah. Okay, then I got it totally wrong that Gambit is not in these movies. Uh, yeah. Why isn't he just called Gambit? I don't know. Is this Gambit Gritty Reboot? It's a bad movie. Like, take it up with the movie. Yeah, right? Remy LeBeau is Gambit. I'm looking this up I don't up know. To I sure. never saw this movie. I abandoned the X-Men movies. Basically, I... I basically abandoned the X-Men movies around the time of Wolverine standalone movies, but then I saw... Um, First Class, which I like, and I saw Logan because of the Oscars. Uh, okay. Well, plus it's a Western, and you know you love Westerns. Yeah, yeah. He was Gambit. 
Anyway, all right, for you, I also went down the Oliver Stone route. I went into the sprawling and tremendous cast of my favorite Oliver Stone movie, one of my favorite movies of all time, JFK. Could literally be any actor or actress in the world. There's so many. That movie is uh, star-studded, and every single one is a serve. Even if they're bad, they are bad in a tremendous way. Uh, I've still... uh, It's been decades, and I still don't know whether Joe Pesci is good or bad in that movie, but the point is, is that he's tremendous. I have not picked Joe Pesci for you. Who I have picked is one of the greats, uh, no longer with us, but he plays... What's his character's name? Jack, I want to say. He plays a sort of two-bit private eye who gets uh, pistol-whipped by Ed Asner in JFK, unfortunately. Uh, Mr. Jack Lemmon. Jack Lemmon, one of the greatest ever. Um, Probably, I mean, catch me on most days and I'd probably say the greatest uh, movie star ever. Um, Interesting. Jack Lemmon. I'm wondering if either of his Oscars are on there. Um, so I'll say The Apartment. The Apartment, yes. Some Like It Hot. Some Like It Hot, yes. That's good. I was worried as soon as the words were out of my mouth because it didn't show up for some... for. Maybe it doesn't show up for like Marilyn Row or something. I don't think we've done an IMDb game for Tony Curtis yet, but you know... Hope Springs a Um Grumpy Old Men. Correct. Three for three. Oh Could we God, both? What if we both get perfect that, that would be a first. I don't think that's ever happened. Um, okay. I'm going to say neither of his Oscars are on there. Um, but I am going to go with... Glenn Larry Glenn Ross shows up for other people. So it would be weird if it doesn't show up for Jack Lemon. So I'm gonna say Glenn Glare again, Ross. You have to pronounce it correctly. I can never pronounce it correctly. Well, if you don't pronounce um, it correctly, you don't get credit for it. I am a mushmouth. Uh, Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. Perfect score, Chris File. Yeah! Very good. <laughs> Both of us. That's never happened. That's never happened. That's very fun. Good for us. Good for us. Thank God for us. All right, that was a fun episode, Chris. I was wondering if we could I make agree. it. Uh, uh, enough of a conversation about Snowden, but I think we managed. Thank, uh, thank you for the assist. <laughs> thank to, uh, you, New York Film Festival, yeah. and thank you, Survivor. Yeah, <laughs> yes, that's a good point. All right, that's our episode. If you want more of This Head Oscar Buzz, you can check out the Tumblr at thisheadoscarbuzz.tumblr.com. You should also follow our Twitter account at had underscore Oscar underscore buzz. Chris, where can the listeners find you and your stuff? You can find me on Twitter and Letterboxd at Chris V. File. That's F-E-I-L. I am also on Twitter and Letterboxd at Joe Reed. Reed spelled R-E-I-D. We would like to thank Kyle Cummings for his fantastic artwork, Dave Gonzalez and Gavin Mevius for their technical guidance. Please remember to rate, like, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, wherever else you get podcasts. A five-star review in particular really helps us out with Apple Podcasts visibility, so throw a blanket over your head so no one can read your passwords and then leave us a nice review. Thank you. That's all for this week, but we hope you'll be back next week for more Buzz.